Before we get started, I want to tell you about one of our awesome new sponsors, Ebles. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You know, except all those aches and pains that creep up as the weather gets cooler, or God forbid you pull a Clark Griswold while putting up the lights. But what if there's a way to be able to enjoy the cold weather of the holiday season without the associated bodily aches and pains? Well, imagine no further as Evil's CBD Topical Freeze Gel is here to the rescue. Whether it's to help that nagging shoulder injury from sports ball game of yesteryear, or it's to help alleviate those deep aches and pains CBD Topical Freeze Gel from Ebels offers the industry best quality and strength to offer lasting relief from chronic pain. And this holiday season, all members of the Brian Nichols Show audience can get that perfect gift to self or stocking stuffer for that fitness fanatic in the family at an exclusive discount at checkout using code TBNS. Again, use code TBNS at checkout to get your discount applied to your order. Listen, the holidays are especially tough this year, so let's at least not spend them in pain. So use code TBNS at checkout to see the evil's difference today. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. One week. That's all it is. One magical, glorious week until we are arriving at Christmas. That's right, Friday. December 18th, 2020, guys, we almost made it, we are almost through this nightmare, just insane weirdness that is 2020, and uh, we can wrap things up next Friday as we conclude uh, on The Brian Nichols Show, but today, obviously, we are joining uh, another phenomenal guest as we conclude this week's uh, episodes of The Brian Nichols Show, starting things off today with an amazing conversation with Professor Jim Marone from Brown University. Jim is a political science professor and focusing today on why it is that the traditional Republican and Democratic parties have lost what many would consider to be their safe voting demographics. So, Professor Marone joins the show today to discuss well, why that is and maybe explaining what we can expect as we head forward to 2022 and beyond. So that being said, on to the show, Professor Jim Marone here on The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Professor Marone, first and foremost, thank you for joining The Brian Nichols Show and, and staying in the theme of having on, as I always uh, tease, phenomenal guests. I'm having uh, Professor Brown University and the author of Republic of Wrath. Now, right now here in The Brian Nichols Show, we've been focusing on sales. We've been focusing on tribalism, trying to get past the the, the group think building trust. Uh, so I think right now your book is a, a perfect uh, topic of conversation. But first and foremost, Professor Marone, Let's kind of go through your your background into into politics. I know you know myself. I have a degree in political science, so uh, I, I empathize. It is not the the characterization <laughs> that is made out to be. There's a lot more to it. Um, so yes. how, uh, go through the history. Your your experience in po- no, uh, political not science. Not as and such. boring. People, you say you you do political science. You either get a screaming match, uh, <laughs> or eyes glaze over. It's like donuts all the time. Um, but you know, uh, through an odd concatenation of circumstances. My dad, who was a GI in World War II, uh, ended up in Brazil, where he married my mother. And so I didn't come to the United States till nine. I was nine years old. And the truth of the matter is, every time I write a book about America, I'm just trying to figure out my country. Uh, you know, I miss that formative 
first nine years. And uh, so I, uh, this is, uh, I've written a bunch of books on American politics, uh, but this one, I just, I wanted to figure out um, about this partisan thing that you were just talking about, the tribal thing. And at first, I'll tell you, Brian, I sort of thought it was a good thing. You know this from your political science background. We actually like party competition. We hate it when both parties agree in kumbaya. We just think that doesn't give the voters a choice. In fact, in 1950, the American Political Science Association, in its wisdom, published a a call for the parties to be more partisan. Don't agree so much. Don't have so much overlap. And so when I started on this book, it was going to be like, stop complaining. Partisanship is great. Well, that didn't work. I had to go to plan B. The more the more things seemed to get out of whack, the more I kept asking, is this different? Have we been here before? Or is there something really new going on in the United States? So I started a fan of partisanship and I ended really quite anxious. So I, we can say we moved towards the Brian Nichols position. Well, right. And you take it a step further, right? We, we start to look at what would be considered to be, I would say, safe, traditional voting groups. I mean, you look at the Republicans and you would say, oh, you're rich, rich working class per- person. That's going to be your average voter there. And then you head over to the Democrats and you have your traditional you know, minority voter. I mean, goodness, look at the Latino vote, which was considered to be one of the largest voting bases that the Democrats had. All of a sudden, the voting base of the Latinos, they're jumping ship because they say, hey, I'm sorry, you're you're approaching politics with some of the, the same gusto and zeal that some of these Cuban uh, folks like Castro and, and, and such that they had. Latino vote. That was part of the demographic destiny of of the Democrats, the largest growing um, largest growing vote in, uh, in in the United States. The one lesson from history, if you study political history, the first lesson you uh, you draw is nothing stays the same. It's yep. always changing. If you think you're going to the bank on yesterday's coalition, you're out in the street to, to twist that metaphor beyond uh, beyond belief. Um, so that's the that is the, the most striking thing to me as I study history. The Latino change. I don't want to talk about it, but. For now, let me just give a little um, historical uh, resonance to that. In 1932, the black vote was pure 100% Republican. Not 100, it was like 90% Republican. Um, There had been 23 members of Congress elected from the Republican Party between 1868 and 1932. Every single one of them a Republican, zero for the Democratic Party. And then in 1932, what happened? Democrats on the ground in the North started recruiting the African-Americans as they moved into the Northern cities as part of the great migration in which black people moved from the South to the North. Everybody said, you're nuts. Uh, Why would a black person join the party of segregation run by white supremacists? And so in 1932, about a third of the Northern black vote moved in to the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. just about a third, wasn't much. By the way, about a third of Latino vote has moved into the Republican Party, not much, but um, everybody said it was ridiculous. In fact, the newspaper columns of the time hooted about how stupid the black people were because they didn't understand this was the segregation party. Wow. Fast forward 12 years later, 1948, the Truman Convention, the liberal uh, civil rights forces, liberals, I call them liberal, but it was a wide swath of people, were able to drive the Dixiecrats right 
out of the party. It went in 1932 from being largely Republican to by 1948, the move to the Democrats was uh, strong. Now, when the most important things like they got the originally got the Democrats African-American votes, despite a party that was hostile to them. I mean, it's run by white segregationists. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt wouldn't even uh, wouldn't even speak out against lynching because he would lose the whole South if he did. Um, and yet I sort of see the first step. It's only the first step. Who did the shoe leather work first in the midterms? Remember, in the state of Florida, it was Latinos who delivered it to the Republican Senate and gubernatorial candidates. And the analysis of that was, hey, they were there on the ground. Democrats took the vote for granted. 2000, same thing happens. I'm hearing an echo of 1932 and 1936. But then the question is, will the Republican Party slowly but surely stop being a party that winks at nativism and embraces the new Latino population. After all, this is a naturally conservative population, highly religious, conservative um, cultural values, yeah. and and very much small business oriented. So if the Republican Party were to say, you know, we're not doing nativism anymore, they would be a behemoth. The Democrats oh, yeah. would be in real trouble. Democrats will have to figure out an answer to that. But the having the Latino vote in play as a political observer, you and I are saying, bring it on. Let's see. It's going to be really interesting in the next four years. Oh, if yeah. I can come back on the show four years from now after the next election, we'll really know if this was a one time blip because the Democrats weren't doing the shoe leather work or if we're seeing a major transformation like we've seen so many times before in American history. That's one of the big ones to watch for. Oh, yeah, for sure. And one of the things that's really fascinating when you look at even like the, the language barrier, you see your average, I say average, I don't even think that's a fair to say, I was say more of the, the left-leaning Democratic candidates using words like progressive and the language barrier for folks that are Latino hearing the word progressive is not the progressive as it is in America, but they, they that's a, a synonym for socialism. And they know the real like the Venezuelan socialism and that's something that, that does scare them to the Cuban socialism so when you start to hear those words utilized it does I think push a lot of people instantly like away from that camp and it goes again to the kind of that, that tribal mindset that we do see really building up in America and, and the nativist approach from from the right and, and the tribal from the left and you know you're touching on another huge thing which is for the first time starting around 2014 the Democrats lost the poor vote. Starting in the very first contested election in 1800, it's wild. you know, the, the, the common man, so-called, the women did vote at that time, of course, um, voted Democratic. And that had been true till 2000 and about 2014. Now, what did the Democrats do to lose that? And I think it's two things, two big things. One, I, you know, I went to the Truman Library, the Harry Truman Library. I'm a big fan of Harry Truman, like a lot of people. He's the last person who crossed over Democratic Republic. Lots of people admire him uh, on both sides. Maybe Ike, too. Um, but in when you read the letters in Harry Truman's library, he really believed that the rich, that the government and his government had to stand up to the rich on behalf of the working guy. You know, pe- he... Congressman write him letters saying there's a, you know, people in my district are big and 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 healthy, but they just sit at home on their butts and you're trying to help them out with your fair deal. And Truman just erupted. He said, look, 
when I was, this is in the letters, and he repeats this over and over again, when I was a Congress, when I was a, a county official back in um, Missouri, I built a hospital for poor people. And he said, you know, some of them were just people who were down in their luck. And some of them were drunks. They had no ambition. But you know what? We took care of all our people. We didn't, we didn't ask anything. By, if you were down and out, we took care of you. And I thought, when was the last time a Democrat spoke for everybody like that? It's always, well, if you play by the rules, as Hillary Clinton used to say, and through no fault of your own, you fail, then we'll take care of you. For Truman, it was, no, we're taking care of everyone. You know, in that, um, in, he's buried in that library, and there's a little perpetual flame where uh, that flickers. And I think he was the last Democrat to talk that way, to talk about, I'm standing for the little guy. I'm not going to ask you for whether you worked hard or whether you went to school. I'm for you. And then the Democrats lost that little by little. And I think they've done nothing about inequality, really for a generation. You know, they, they have policies, some of which I really support, but they have not really, when they've been in office, addressed the problems of inequality in a way that resonates with people who are at the bottom of, a, of the scale. Now, it has to be added, the Democrats would add, part of why we've lost the true message is because politics grew racialized. And I think that too is true. So yes, politics grew racialized and trying to help some people got all tangled up in race. Absolutely true. But the question I'd ask every Democrat is what are you really doing about inequality? Not that fits your models, you know, in political science, but that actually resonates with the people you're talking to, which really gets right back to your question. How could you talk about this problem and yet make sense of the people you're talking to and not just people like, Political scientists, well, right? Yeah, well, you can convince us. So it's the combination of losing the real uh, sense of the common person and also the racialized politics. And I, uh, we should talk about that because that is so intense today, I, I believe. Absolutely. But it's the two. And you yeah. can't let the Democrats off the hook uh, or the Republicans off the hook for the uh, other things. I think there's lots of blame to parse around for our tribal politics. Oh, my God. Well, that's why I'm a libertarian. And I, I say libertarian with a small L because I don't want to necessarily put myself in a camp myself. You know, I I mean, yes, I am technically registered as a big L libertarian party member. But at the same point in time, uh, you know, to quote Ferris Bueller, uh, you know, isms, in my opinion, are not a good thing. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you if you constantly are focusing on the ism, then I think you're constantly trying to look for those differences instead of looking for the similarities. And, you know, that's one thing that I look at somebody, even though I don't agree with him on a lot of policy, but somebody like an Andrew Yang, he definitely resonates more with your average person, I think. And he actually spoke about this when you were looking down ballot. A lot of Democratic seats were, were not just, um, you know, they thought that they were going to win. They didn't win those seats, but they ended up losing seats. And, and that caught, I think, a lot of Democrats by surprise. And he's saying, guys, we're not talking to the, the, the audience that we think we're talking to. And I mean, it, I, it's it's kind of dis disheartening, I guess, a little bit, because I wanted to believe for a while that 
the average like person that is running for office on a democratic line, they are making that argument. But I think he's making the point where we are, I say we being, if you were a Democrat in this case, you're losing that argument. So I guess what would be the, the remedy, not just from a Democratic perspective, talking to people more on the issues that are, are concerning to them in this case, uh, you know, inequality, economics and so forth. But, you know, where where is also the Republican Party missing the ball? Because obviously they, they didn't get I guess the groundswell that they thought they were going to get, um, you know, they still are, are facing a, a contested U.S. Senate, and we're, I know we're going to dig into the, the ramifications of that down the road. Um, but right now, the Republicans, while they did gain some seats, they, they didn't have a, a you know massive groundswell or anything. Yeah, um, uh, Yang, by the way, a former student of mine, so I got no a little bit of credit. Yeah, he went to Brown and uh, took my class, uh, my my big class. But you know, I, he's a great example because you don't have to agree with him. He talks. In English, he uses verbs and he gets out there. He puts his butt out there with a crazy, stupid proposal. Incidentally, first proposed by Milton Friedman, you, I assume one of your heroes, uh, if you're going to be a big or a small L, hard or soft libertarian. I actually knew Milton Friedman when I was at the University of Chicago, a lovely man. But when he started going around talking about a negative income tax, his idea was wipe out the whole welfare state. I don't want any welfare programs and give everybody an annual fund. Then they can go into the market and buy what they want. To, then it sounded kooky. Um, you know, Richard Nixon picked it up for his uh, for his welfare reform plan. But um, and now it sounds kooky from the other side. It takes an Andrew Yang to suggest it. Um, but what I really admire about Yang, and this is really implicit in what um, in what you've been saying, is you have to talk English. I think both Democrats and, you know, I'd listen to the debates, Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, they were, it, there's a lot of silly time. There's a lot of thinking that, what does my base want? Let's give it to them. Yes. Rather than talking, and people, people have pretty good BS detectors. I know Trump is a special case now. Uh, but in general, um, you, you, you can't, sometimes I listen to people who look so great on paper, but you think, Come to a verb. Say something that I don't know. Don't just tell me the American people are wonderful. Uh, it may or may not be true, but that's not going to uh, get you elected. The great problem for Republicans, something happened in 1964 that I emphasize in my book, and I was surprised about what it looked like. So in my book, I try to give advice to both parties, and we've been sort of pushing the Democrats a little bit about it, and, and they deserve it. As you say, they were shocked. They were uh, uh um, what would you say, floating to victory, yep. surfing to victory. Uh, it really shocked. If Trump had been a slightly better candidate, uh, this would have been a real tsunami on the wrong side. Um, we can talk about why that is. But the 1964 election is the great turning point, one of the, and one of the great turning points in American history. Going into it, the Republican Party was divided between liberals and conservatives. The liberals dominated the conventions because they just had bigger states, states like New York and, uh, and, and Illinois, those, those Republicans were, were really quite liberal. In fact, uh, they were the big civil rights advocates. If you looked at who had the best civil rights laws in the country, it was the Republican northern governors who, had, who had, uh, were hanging on to the black vote that was slowly going to the Democrats. In that 1964 convention, I read the descriptions in the newspapers of that convention, two things happened. One was joyous to conservatives. That is, they finally kicked out the liberal wing of the party. They booed lustily when Nelson Rockefeller got up to talk. They wanted nothing to do with him. 
And their line was, look, for uh, years and years and years, we've been a minority party, and the liberal wing has dominated our uh, party conventions. You know, enough, we're going to hire a, we're going to, not hire, but nominate a true conservative. And Goldwater, who was yeah. nominated at that convention, was in many ways an admirable man. You read his speeches, an admirable man with no bone of bias or bigotry in him. Uh, There's a famous story about him I read in Time magazine back in the 1950s, where a, a black principal comes up to him. Principal comes up to him and says, why don't you give us a gold watch too? The best principal in my school. Go what it says, because I don't believe in segregated schools. Principal says, well, the white schools are segregated as the black schools. And Goldwater says, by gosh, you're right. And after that, black schools and white schools, they all got watches for the best students. So that said, easy to admire Barry Goldwater. But at that 64 convention, the conservative, some conservatives saw that if they could take the white segregationist South, they would become a majority party. And racial furies crawled into the coalition alongside honest conservatives like Goldwater. There's a wonderful, a terrible, uh, wonderful in the uh, sense of history, terrible in the sense of reality. Wonderfully terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's it. By um, Jackie Robinson, the baseball star, who was a Republican uh, delegate for Goldwater. And he wrote in the black press, right on the front page, they splashed it across the front page. I felt sitting in that delegation with people shouting the N-word at me, I felt like I knew what it was like for a Jew in Nazi Germany. So very dramatic statement. And what came out of that convention was genuine conservatism that turned a blind eye to genuine racism. The races had all been in the Democratic Party, so you can't justify that party, but now they moved into the Republican Party. That's the sort of uh, sad part of that 64 convention. Um, Goldwater got lots of letters urging him to just make a speech rejecting them, but it was his path to victory, and so he stayed silent. And that coalition, uh, eventually blown into life by uh, Richard Nixon, who was very suave about it with winks and whistles, just became baked in to the um, to the Republican coalition. Genuine, honest conservatives, including my dad, who is a lifelong, ardent Republican um, and a wonderful man, and genuine people, let's say they felt racial anxiety. Now, this wasn't too much of a problem for Republicans because the white vote went Republicans. There's only 39% voting Democratic between 1980 and 2016. So they, they had this big vote. But as the white vote declined, those little whistles and winks had to become stronger and stronger to draw more of the anxious white voters uh, into the coalition. By 2012, most Republicans said, OK, we've, run, we've had the run with that. Let's build a broader tent. Um, and almost all the party notables agreed, except, of course, for Donald Trump, who really decided to squeeze that last screaming white vote out of racial anxiety. Um, I think now for young Republicans, the task is clear. If for Democrats, the task is reconnect yourself to the party of Thomas Jefferson. And I know Jefferson owned slaves. He was horrible that way. But let's say the party of 
uh, of Truman then, um, the party that stood up for and spoke to the, the, the little guy, the um, Republican, young Republicans now have to finally make the break that has been implicit, at least in the party, since 1964. It is now time to say we stand for conservative, libertarian, if you will, principles, and we are going to speak to all groups. If you had that happening, you would see a lot of African-Americans moving back to their original party, a lot of Latinos, because they share a lot of interests. But you have a party that has to say we no longer stand for this racial thing that we that really started in 64 and got amplified by Trump. So the next four years are going to be really important for the Republicans that way. And I know my students who are Republicans, they, that, they are so eager to do that. They don't want to be involved with racists or nativists. They want a big tent because they believe in their principles. Yeah, so we're seeing that. that. We're seeing a reversion, I think, to that. Actually, you know, it's funny because back when I was in in college, I was the the GOP chair for uh, their Republican Party um, co- college Republicans group, and you know that was before I, I decided to start doing this like you know YouTube rabbit hole. I was like, I don't think I necessarily agree a hundred percent anymore. So I, you know, and and that was one of those things though. I was like, why are people having such a visceral reaction? Because for me, I'm from the middle of nowhere, New York, and you know, for me, it was just like everybody around me was mostly Republican. And and for me to see people who were instantly like having a negative re- reaction when you even say the word GOP or Republican, I was like, well, hold on. There, there's a there's an issue here and I got to figure out what it is like. Where where is that disconnect? And and to your point, there is, I think, a, a very strong opportunity right now to to rectify kind of that. Like, I didn't know Jackie Robinson was a Goldwater represent or a delegate at, at the 64 convention. Like that's that's. Wow, right? Yeah, but he like, was actually a Rockefeller delegate, which is oh, Rockefeller. so gotcha. much trouble. Okay. Rockefeller was also running among the uh, Republicans. So you'd call him, you know, a liberal Republican by the standards of the day. But even still, fascinating to think that that was like the norm. And and I think yes. you're seeing kind of this push from the GOP right now to kind of, like your point, get back to that. And, you know, let's let's kind of do this. I, I hate to, to do such a big jump, but... It does go towards the, the ramifications of this this past election, right? And looking forward, you know, between Republicans and, and Democrats and even, I would say, Libertarians, the, the thought of a, a stalwart government where nothing is getting done, um, I think for a lot of Republicans and, and conservatives and Libertarians, that's, that's oh, that's that's exciting because if government can't, you know, get, get things done, then they can't do more harm. Um, but I know that you're you're kind of taking a different approach because you're, you're saying that there actually could be some real, not just, you know, harm that's caused, but actually maybe some more long term lasting harm from a, a more institutional level. Could you dig into that some? Yes. Uh, a number of different things. Let's start with elections. Our electoral system is incredibly rickety. It's, the you know, the founders didn't care. They, they didn't care about voting. They didn't believe in parties. They didn't think there would be parties. So they just tossed it to the states. And every state has its own electoral system. And, you know, they're pretty rickety. There's no right to vote. Incredibly, there is, as the Supreme Court said in Bush v. Gore, no constitutional right to vote for the president of the United States. Um, so we have a very – a system that has always been about politics. Um, I love politics. You know, we political scientists. But – not when you're talking about the rules of the game. Hey, set the rules. It's like Calvin Ball. Remember Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes? He sort of made up new rules as he was, well, that's our electoral system. And it held this time, thankfully, but it's gotten rickety and rickety. We got, we have got to set up a set of institutions 
that say, look, the vote is settled. Here's how the process works. You know, quit messing around. Let's try to get as many people in as possible. And let's uh, let's all agree that we can constitutionalize a right to vote um, and then uh, take it from there. So the first institutional thing that I really lie awake worrying about is the sheer ricketiness of our elections. Now let's get to the actual um, federal government. And by the way, as, as a liberal, I am suddenly delighted to be a state's rights person. Uh, it's funny <laughs> to watch everybody flip, right? Liberals hated states' rights in the Great Society period. And now, no, 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 leave California alone with its uh, clean air standards. No, 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 leave Colorado alone. So you got to call yourself a hypocrite when you're a hypocrite. Um, but we have a real problem, and you'll you'll uh, you'll really uh, uh, appreciate this one, Brian. That the Congress is supposed to be, and was designed by the Constitution to be, the policy-making branch of government. The ex executive is supposed to execute. The Supreme Court is supposed to patrol the boundaries. Up till you can blame the New Deal. I actually blame prohibition. The 1920s, when government decided in its wisdom that you may not take a drink, but wh whatever the roots of this, what we've got now is a very active government where Congress has completely abdicated authority. So in a properly functioning constitutional system, you would come in there and tell Congress, do nothing. You know, have an army if you must. Do this. There's a few things you're willing to do. The less rest, leave it up to the states. And co and Congress ought to have that battle and make a decision. Um, and when someone says, oh, my gosh, we've got a problem. We have to settle. Have a debate. You come there and say, no, leave it to the states in the long run will be better. Someone else comes in and says, no, no, really, the federal government has to act. You have the debate. You take the vote. Done. But what's happened now, and this really should worry us, um, is Congress abdicates. You know, it's they just they just are a complete stalemate. So what happens? The president acts. Uh, we, going back to Bush, he really took the war powers on to himself. Yes, the idea yeah. of starting Guantanamo Bay, liberals went nuts. Replaced by Obama. What does Obama do? He tries to work with Congress. It doesn't work. So he expands the powers of the president even further. I'm all for that immigration reform that he had. I love the dreamers. But I'm not so happy about it being done by the fiat of the president. I understand why he did it. Along comes Trump. He makes Obama look like a piker. But you can't blame these individuals for somehow being flawed. Oh, you can if you like. But this is a trend that really I would lay at Congress's step. People are demanding action. You don't really have a debate, should we be doing this, should we not? That we, You and I could talk for hours about that as political scientists. And we should in Congress talk for hours about it. No, it goes to the presidency. Biden is now going to hear enormous calls to fix everything through the uh, White House. The Republicans are going to actually push things his way by saying, we're not going to work with you. And, you know, if if you, it's hard to imagine, but if Mitch and Nancy and Schumer uh uh, got to, and McCarthy, the, the uh, House leader uh, for the Republicans, got together and said, we can do this, we won't do that, let's negotiate it out. We might actually have power going back to Congress. Biden would probably be relieved. But if they don't do that, we'll get more power in the presidency, and we're becoming 
what uh, comparative politics people, people who study other countries, call a typical presidential system. Now, all the other presidential systems are in South America. And one by one, they copied our constitution. What happened was they would break down and all power would go to the presidency. And the president would stand for election every four years, and hopefully it wasn't rigged. Um, but the legislatures became so weak, they became uh, straw, uh, straw people. And we are drifting in that direction because of the stalemate. So uh, if we, it's really something to worry about with the institutions. I mean, to take just one dramatic example, repeal and replace Obamacare. The Trump people didn't expect to win. Fair enough. They were shocked, like, like everybody else. And we should talk about polling. And um, so they don't have anything to suggest. So they toss it into Congress. Congress doesn't have anything to suggest. So they keep having these votes. They can't get it through. So what happens? They just toss it to the courts. We still have the Supreme Court arguing whether or not to strike down Obamacare. It's not their business. It's Congress's business. So I really worry about the decline of Congress as a legislative body. And whether you're a socialist, if you're Bernie Sanders, um, or if you're all the way over on the libertarian side, you should feel like, okay, these are the guys who ought to be making policy. And as they abdicate, and most of those guys get elected over and over again, so it's in their interest to abdicate, it all goes to the presidency. That's my, so my two big worries, an imperial presidency and uh, a very weak electoral system. Well, and and I, we, I was going to say, no, well, go ahead. I think you you were actually kind of, I think you were touching on the solution in your original diagnosis, and that was, we got to get back to some federalist approach to governance. I think we've, I think we've seen far too often a lot of states abdicating responsibility, or I would say, kind of having responsibility taken away, whether they like it or not, and that responsibility has then been pushed to D.C. And I, I, I think. I think the the argument right now for federalism, and you look at a COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, that argument is, I think, the most strong we could possibly make because you see the merit in the argument. You know, do you want, you know, uh, you know, one top-down government control in terms of how we're going to take care of a entire nationwide pandemic in this in this case if the party of the person that you don't want in power is the power uh, the person in power and that's a really big issue so i think if we're we're gonna look forward to some remedies right i'm hoping federalism would be a way to to build that and and also I, i'm curious because you know as, as we are unfortunately we're getting close on time here but you, you did yeah. mention um with, with polling you know one thing i i do see your average american they are getting a little disenfranchised with this like trusting experts which it does kind of it it hurts me a little bit because you know when you're you're going through school you 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 understand the the science the 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 math behind the statistics behind how polling works for example and and then you look at you know, you extrapolate that upon a larger scale and you can look at you know the lockdowns and the the ramifications there and you can look at the the public health response and there's just people across the board who are questioning the expertise of said experts so i guess with that war on expertise what can experts do to help maybe win back some of the trust of right now a very weary public yes you know i think it goes beyond expertise and you're right there has been a incredible uh, turn against expertise but if you stop and think about who's prospering and who isn't in, a, in the United States today, if, like you, like me, like most of the listeners, if you went to college, if you graduated from college and learned to think abstractly, 
by and large, you are probably doing pretty well. You probably live somewhere near a coast. You're living in a thriving area. You believe in expertise because expertise has been, frankly, very good to you. If you're living somewhere in the middle of the country and, you know, you're not a particularly good student. I had a kid in my high school class who, in no way he was going to go to college. He got a great job uh, in construction. He was a, he used to run machines. He could make a really good living back when I graduated from high school. I won't say when it was, but it was a long time ago. Um, the people who are now caught without degrees are the people who don't win in this economy. They're, they're on average, the people without college education are, um, their incomes have been stagnant. They are not doing better than their fathers and their grandfathers. They're doing worse. So we've now divided the country into haves and have nots. But one way to put it is um, the experts and the non-experts. So it's no surprise. It's easy for those of us who live by expertise to sneer at people who say all kinds of crazy things about the experts. But the truth is the, the, the band of America that lives in expertise is prospering and the band that doesn't is really hurting. And for the experts to win back the common person, I think they've got to begin to think of not just giving economics lectures, about, well, you know, free trade is best for all, but talking in a way that both substantively and process speaks to people. And I think it's only going to get worse and worse because when you say experts and non-experts, you're also saying economic winners and economic losers. And economic losers are always pissed off, as well they should be. So I think that's really the deep underlying thing. And it it's real trouble for the United States. I yeah. mean, I think if we don't value our education system, uh, we're, we're in terrible trouble. I'm, I'm hoping was, that, I'm hoping that we're going to see maybe a push again, back towards that federalist approach. And, and again, I'm thinking more and more so as we, we go through these conversations and, you know, I might show one of the things we've been focusing on is, is sales, but I think we have to have more of a regional approach to how we're, we're selling the ideas or, or selling, you know, whatever, and, and everything in life is sales, right? I mean, if you're selling yourself an idea, <laughs> a product. So like, you know, if, if we're not talking to people where they're at and we're not showing the value in solutions and actually showing that those solutions are solving problems. And I think that's where we are. We're seeing both the left and the right. And we're going to say the Democrats and Republicans in this case have, have dropped the ball across the board. So, you know, I, I would say there is a great opportunity for uh, number one, a, a force in the market to, to, you know, all of a sudden rise up as that alternative. Now I look to the libertarian party. I say, all right, you're up. And I'm hoping that they, <laughs> they can get, you know, some, I mean, we had Dr. Joe Jorgensen, who I think she was very respectable, um, very respectable college professor. And, you know, she, she knows exactly, you know, all the libertarian uh, philosophy and such, and she can talk about it all day long. Uh, and it stinks that she didn't have more success, but you know, I'm hoping that going into 2024, we're going to see, somebody that can maybe be a different voice um, for people who are looking for alternatives, unless, to your point, the GOP and Democrats uh, start to, to approach things a little differently, perhaps, in the way that they're uh, reaching out to their constituencies. So that being said, Professor Jim Marone, uh, so folks obviously want to go ahead and get in touch with this amazing new book, Republic of Wrath. So give us a quick Spark Notes overview of what people can expect when they go ahead and open page one and uh, continue this page burner. They'll uh, see the things that have always been true about American partisanship 
fights, battles. A, a congressman right before the Civil War said uh, anybody who didn't have a gun and a knife when they walked onto the floor of Congress had two guns. Uh, there were 30 different duels that drew blood um, in that era. So lots of the stuff that we lament today um, is just old hat. But what we've gotten ourselves backed into is two parts. What you'll see as you read the book is the incredible battles that have gone through American history over the question, who are we? Battles about nativism, battles, battles about racial uh, equality, and incredible violence against African Americans. And those battles always trigger battles about uh, gender and sexuality. And we've come to a point now where for the first time in American history, one party has all the so-called minorities and another party has all the people who consider themselves white. This is not a good situation. We have to get back to the policy debates exactly, Brian, as you were just saying. You would like to see the country move in a libertarian direction. Let New Hampshire or maybe New England make policy for itself. Let the Southeast, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas make policy for themselves. That's the kind of debate that we ought to be having to rescue the United States from this notion that it's tribe against tribe. And I think maybe we saw the first stirrings of that as Latinos start to move to the Republican Party and, um, and white voters start edging back to the Democratic Party for the first time since uh, 1980. Maybe we can get beyond the... Uh, my party looks like me and begin to think my party thinks like me. And then the debate that you want to have is the debate we'll have. One last point, we ought to have that debate about libertarianism, about whether we should turn to states' rights. And we've got to decide where to have that debate. As long as we're arguing about who's really an American, who's really legitimate, it's a way to push the issues that you are so rightly pulling to the fore um, it's a, new, a way to bury them. So if Congress weren't arguing about who's true American, they could really argue about would we be better off as a true federalist system? You know, liberals like to look north to Canada for their national health care system, but we could look north for something else. They're a genuine federalism. The state, the provinces run all their systems. Maybe we ought to debate that. Uh, instead of uh, of the healthcare debate, but we need to have that debate and not the tribal one. And so uh, I'm glad you're doing the hard work, Brian. It's uh, it's really fun uh, to talk to another political scientist who knows so much about this and and is is out there on the front lines for sure. Well, Professor Jim Marone, thank you so much for number one joining the Brian Nichols Show, but number two, uh, fighting the good fight. And honestly, this is how we uh, we have the, the the success moving forward. We have to have these conversations. And hey, you gotta be the change you like to see in the world. So that being said, the book is Republic of Wrath. We'll include the link in the show notes. Professor okay. Jim Marone, thank you so much for joining the Brian Nichols All Show. All right, thanks. What fun it was to talk to you. Before we wrap up, I want to tell you about an amazing new podcast. You longtime listeners of The Brian Nichols Show know him well, and that is one Brad Palumbo and his stellar new program, Breaking Boundaries. 
Join Brad as he interviews top writers, politicians, and thinkers from all across the political spectrum to give you a new perspective you won't find in the mainstream liberal media or right-wing echo chambers. From guests like Rand Paul to Glenn Greenwald, Brad is having conversations and focusing on issues that are driving America with the people who are in the driver's seats. So, head over to your favorite podcast app, hit subscribe, strap in, and be prepared for some wild food takes like Rand Paul and his grand mayonnaise conspiracy. Again, that's Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo, available in your favorite podcasting app today. Alrighty, guys, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Professor Jim Marone. What a fantastic conversation, and what a great opportunity to learn more about why it is that our traditional two parties are losing those respective voting groups, and what we as libertarians and just folks of the greater liberty movement can do to try to win them over by winning over some hearts and minds. So that being said, thank you, Professor Jim Marone, for joining The Brian Nichols Show and looking ahead to next week. My goodness, guys, again, in store for some phenomenal episodes coming up here on Monday next week. Representative Tony Gehrig from Fargo, North Dakota. I say representative, actually, Commissioner, City Commissioner Tony Gehrig, which is basically the role in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, I was like a city councilor. Um, discussing uh, not only looking at uh, North Dakota uh, as it pertains to the COVID-19 lockdowns, but specifically Fargo, North Dakota. How has Fargo been reacting and, and how uh, Tony, as a city commissioner, would go ahead and maybe present things in a different way to not have as many uh, negative ramifications. Also, fun fact, um, so Tony Gehrig actually is one of the city commissioners who was able to um, face election using the approval uh, approval voting system that we discussed here on the show with Aaron Hamlin from the Center for Election Science. So uh, it was interesting to hear somebody who actually uh, was able to experience approval voting as a candidate and uh, his perspective there. So I'll save that coming up for Monday. Coming up on Wednesday, Kurt Libertarian, Checkmate the State. You can find him over on Twitter and he is joining the show to talk about his brand new article over on Substack, Guerrilla Politics, how the Libertarian Party can actually go ahead and win some elections. Kurt uh, joins the show to make his case. And then on Friday, Grant McCracken joins the Brian Nichols show to discuss his brand new book, The New Honor Code, a simple plan for raising our standards and restoring our good names. You can make sure you go ahead and check out that fantastic conversation over on Friday. So guys, yes, three amazing episodes to uh, get ready to strap in for as we head into the uh, one of the final weeks here of uh, the, the the holiday season. And this is, uh, you know, a, a special time of year, but it's also a, a difficult time of year for some folks out there. So if you are someone out there who the holidays are extra difficult, please reach out to some family or friends or, or folks out there who do absolutely care for you. And, and don't don't be alone this holiday season. We love you. And we want to make sure that you're doing well as well, because you know, honestly, that's how we're going to be able to, as a society, move things forward, caring about one another and not asking the government to be the one to force that care. Um, so, guys, honestly, it's been a great, uh, great opportunity to have some fantastic conversations here this week. So thank you to this week's awesome guests and thank you to next week's guests as we look forward to an amazing week upcoming. Uh, folks, if you have not had the chance yet, follow me on social media at B Nichols Liberty, Twitter, Facebook, Minds.com, Parlor, and yes, Instagram now. So you can go ahead and Follow me at B Nichols Liberty. If you have not had the chance yet to support our awesome sponsors like Evils and Breaking Boundaries, please take a moment. Go ahead and do that. And folks, if you could do me a favor, if you have not yet, go ahead, give us that five star rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you get your your podcasts. And again, a five star rating and review would put you into that amazing Ebels topical freeze gel CBD giveaway, which I use on the regular. So if you guys want to go ahead and get entered into an awesome chance to win an amazing product that could make it a great stocking stuffer or just great for you if you have those aches and pains, go ahead, give us that five-star rating and review and email me 
send a review, brian at Show.com. So, guys, with that being said, that's all I have for you this week. So, with that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Professor Jim Marone. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.